H.L. Mencken once said that Puritanism is the haunting fear that somewhere, someone may be having a good time. And that is the topic of this month's <laughs> book, The Scarlet Letter, The Puritans, and What Happens to a Poor Couple When They Had a Little Too Much of a Good Time. I am joined this month by Julie Hartman, Hello. a former Harvard student, a recent Harvard student, though we won't hold it against you. So from basically the same place that this book takes place in, and a co-host of a podcast with Dennis Prager. Lucky who, me. Who occasionally walks around these halls over here. That's Julie, right. th thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Michael. What's the book about? The book takes place in 17th century Puritan Massachusetts, as you said, where no fun is allowed. And it follows this beautiful woman, Hester Prynne, who had an extramarital affair. Her husband is across the ocean. He went to England for a few years. He's some kind of academic. And they had a loveless marriage. It was even uh, believed that he might have died at sea on his voyage. So he's been gone for some years. And Hester decided to have an extramarital affair with none other than the minister of the town, Arthur Dimsdale. And it begot them a child, Pearl, who is an impish, a slightly wicked little child. We can talk about the symbolism of Pearl. Anyway, it is discovered, of course, because she bears a child that she had this extramarital affair. And the Puritan town utterly scorns her. They condemn her to wear the scarlet letter, which we presume stands for adultery. They put her on the scaffold. They make her stand in a pillory. And they say that she is supposed to be a living sermon against sin. And the entire town just hates her. They are so awful to her. This man comes into the story. The town doesn't know who he is, but Hester knows who he is. It's Roger Chillingworth. His pseudonym is Roger Supposedly, Chillingworth. Yeah. Yes. And it's Hester's husband who comes back at this, at this moment. He convinces slash threatens Hester to conceal his identity. And he becomes Arthur Dimsdale's physician because Arthur Dimsdale's health is dwindling. He, he's racked with, with such guilt at this affair. Also, Hester Prynne will not reveal who her co-adulterer is. She will not say that it is the minister because she loves him and she wants him to continue to do his work. So seven years pass, and the rest of the book is about how each of the parties deal with this sin. Hester Prynne transforms herself. I admire her hugely. She doesn't pout. She doesn't whine. She becomes a seamstress. She helps the poor. She's incredibly charitable. And people start to see the A as representing able as opposed to adulterous. Arthur Dimsdale, on the other hand, he becomes a shadow of a man, and Roger Chillingworth, Hester's husband, becomes this vengeful, spiteful guy. And do you want me to give away the ending of yes. the book, or shall Tell I pause? Me. Tell me. At the end of the book, Dimsdale and Hester and their child Pearl decide this is enough. We've done enough penance. We're going to get on a boat and go to England. Chillingworth, of course, tries to intervene in the plan, and it ends with this dramatic final scene where in front of the entire town, Dimsdale finally confesses that he is the father of the child and he drops dead. Kind of a sad. Yeah, I was going to say gentle. And, and, and then I guess the little coda to that is Hester goes off. She's got her kid. Little Pearl goes, presumably gets married, has a good life. Hester comes back. Yes. And then Hester dies and is buried 
next to this minister, and the headstone for both of them is just a big A, big scarlet A. Okay. Little harsh treatment of Hester Prynne. Absolutely. What's the book about? That's what the book says. That's the plot of the book. What's it about? Why, why does every 14-year-old in America read this book? <laughs> well, that's a different question than what the book is about. Every 14-year-old in America reads this book because I think American public schools think it's a feminist read. It shows that this woman was was so oppressed in Puritan America. And by the way, she was. I mean, she she was no doubt treated terribly unjustly. But I think that's what is read into the book now. That is not the point of the book, however, at least by my judgment. This is a spiritual read. This is a book that is fundamentally about sin. What should be characterized as sin? It's ambiguous as to whether this affair actually was a sin, and, and we can talk about that. It's about how a society and how individuals ought to react to sin. And again, for that reason, it's about the darker sides of our nature that we all have to confront. I barely remember the first time I read this book, sometime in high school or middle school or something, and I liked it. It didn't, I, I liked it, I enjoyed it, but I haven't thought about it very much since. You really like liked this book. I didn't like it but the first time like I read it. it. Okay, so what changed? So I read it for the first time in high school in ninth grade, and I hated it. The only thing I remembered about it was the rose bush because, and I view it as sadly a failing of, of American uh, school teaching today, we overanalyze books to death. Mm. Teachers, not all teachers, but many teachers tend to focus, I think, excessively on symbolism and not about the greater, in this case, spiritual takeaway of the novel. And additionally, I remember it being reduced to a social commentary. As we've been saying, it's true that, that Hester was wrongfully treated, but there's a greater spiritual takeaway from the novel that I didn't know or appreciate until I read it after college. As weird as it sounds, I also really appreciated the way that Hester and Arthur Dimsdale beat themselves up totally over their sin because we live in a society now where if people do something wrong, they will point the finger at everyone else but themselves and they will contrive grievances. There's there's very little personal responsibility. There's so much victimhood. And I just really admired that these characters understood the gravity of their sin. They could have said, hey, it was just it was just one night and we Hester's in this loveless marriage and I'm this pious minister who's allowed to have a little fun. They didn't. They got it. They did something wrong. They beat themselves up about it. They sought to make it better. And that was so refreshing for me to read in such a different culture in, as we have now in 2023. To read about shame in a yes. shameless culture. Yes. <laughs> yes. That we're currently living well in. Said. This is probably considered the most American novel ever written, certainly one of the classic works of American literature. I descend from some of these Puritans. So I, <laughs> but to your point on the modern read of it, that it's a feminist story, or even the original read of it, which is questioning uh, certain moral beliefs, I can't help but get this feeling that it's a little bit lib. You know, in the sense that uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, was a transcendentalist. So he, he was part of this kind of liberal, hippie, religious movement. He was one of the founding members of Brook Farm, which was this commune that ultimately fell apart. And he 
in, in the words of Orestes Bronson, who's uh, one of the great American intellectuals, was Catholic. He said, oh, Hawthorne, he just doesn't understand Christianity. He doesn't get the religion. Mm-hmm. But he clearly hates the Puritans. But, but I also don't agree with the Puritans. So I don't, where does that leave me? Is this, is, it, is this a Christian novel, an anti-Christian novel, conservative, liberal? What, it's a confounding novel. It is a confounding novel. A quick note on Hawthorne's disdain of the Puritans. A lot of that is rooted in his own history. His great-grandfather, John Hathorne, was a judge in the Salem witch trials. And he was not just any judge. He was the judge. Do you want to hear something weird? I've never said this publicly before. This is not, it's not earth shattering, but I, I played Judge Hathorne in ninth <laughs> grade in The Crucible. Were you stern and unforgiving? I certainly was. I absolutely <laughs> was, as was he. And so he's, he's reacting against yes. this very austere religion in a very austere environment in New England. And even just the environment in the book, because it's a romance. The environment is real. It's a real place. There are characters based on real people. There are real historical figures referenced, Governor John Winthrop of Massachusetts Bay. But also, it's kind of like a magical fairyland. Mm-hmm. Also, the, the, the girl conceived out of wedlock is referred to as an elf. She's referred to as impish. Yes. Uh, also, the, the sky will light up with symbols. That, that scarlet letter A that's on Hester Prynne, it appears on the skin of the minister. Uh, it, how did it get there? They debate that even at the end of the book. So it's got all of this mystical kind of, kind of stuff. And you mentioned the witch trials. There's a witch in the <laughs> novel. So on the one hand, you say, well, he's criticizing his forebears for, for running the witch trials. On the other hand, he seems to suggest in the novel that there really are witches. Well, he is certainly harsh on the Puritans in the novel. I mean, really, the whole book is lampooning their judgment and their hypocrisy because they'll wag the finger at Hester, and yet they're sinners too, as we all are. But there are also moments when he actually recognizes that there were some parts of the Puritan character that were good. He says that they had a dignity and a kind of steadiness of character that Hawthorne says in in the 19th century, Americans lack. And I think this is important because, you know, you you asked a few moments ago, is this lib? Is this conservative? Is this pro-Christian? Is this anti-Christian? And I agree. I had those thoughts reading the book. But I think that's the point. I appreciate Hawthorne's ambiguity because he doesn't identify one character that does it exactly right. Hester Prynne certainly becomes this pious dignified woman, but she takes her martyrdom, I think, a little too far. Certainly, Dimsdale, by hiding his sin, becomes a shadow of a man, and he absolves himself of responsibility to his family. Chillingworth becomes this vengeful, spiteful creature whose whole life is to seek revenge on this man who had an affair with his wife. And so you kind of end the book and you go, were they redeemed? you know, who did it right? And the answer is no one did it exactly right. And, and that reflects life. It's very hard to, to, to know how to hit it right, right with regard to sin. But it, you mentioned earlier that it raises all sorts of questions about sin, mm-hmm. especially because the townsfolk are so harsh on, on poor Hester Prynne. They try to take her daughter away at one point. The governor is debating yes. this. Dimsdale has to intervene and suggest that she keep her daughter. And yet there is 
in the in the world of the book a broadly christian providential cosmos in as much as the uh, governor's sister who is is based on the governor's sister-in-law is a witch she's an actual witch who goes out to the woods and who talks to hester prynne and who talks to minister dimsdale and will say hey i know my the devil told me that you were out in the woods today. Come on out and we're going to do our witchy routines. I mean, she really believes that stuff. And it's based on a character who was, who was brought up at the witch trials. Uh, the, the scarlet letter, the A, turns up in the sky as uh, Arthur Dimsdale is confessing to no one to the middle of the night his, his sin. The, the spiritual world is real. So it's, it's, it's not, uh, I mentioned The Crucible earlier by Arthur Miller which is an attack, purely an attack on, on these people and using the Puritans as a stand-in for the, the anti-communists in the 20th century. Uh, but this is not purely an attack. It's saying maybe they had something right. But then the question of all these symbols is, what do they really mean? Because when that A shows up in the sky, Arthur Dimsdale is convinced that this is God showing a sign of his crimes. Other people say, oh, it's an A for angel because Governor Winthrop died. Right. These questions of interpretation pervade the whole novel so that you you don't necessarily know exactly if what you've just seen really happened. Mm -hmm. There are many symbols in addition to the ones that you mentioned, which kind of have this dual meaning. We see at the beginning of the book this rose bush outside of the prison door where Hester and Pearl are being held. And what is a rose? It's beautiful, but it's biting. It's prickly. Pearl. Hester and Dimsdale's daughter. Uh, Hawthorne writes, she is a treasure who came at a great cost. That's what a pearl is. If you look at Hester's scarlet letter that she has to wear on her breast, it both burns her. You know, it's a constant reminder of her sin, but it also, as Hawthorne writes, is a, is a passport for her to go into the hearts of other people and see their sin. So here we have all of these symbols, which again, have these, this dual nature. And I think that reflects the dual nature of sin itself. A sin can be both a blessing and a curse. If you deal with it appropriately, you can make it into a blessing. You can use it to, to better yourself and, and better your society. But of course, it can be a curse because you know that you've done wrong. And the, the resolution of this, you see at three points in the novel, you see the scaffold come up. First for the condemnation of Esther Prynne, then in the middle when... Uh, Dimsdale comes out and confesses in the middle of the night. He can't keep it in anymore. His, his conscience is racking him. So, And then finally, at the end, there's a big procession with all the dignitaries, and the minister gets up onto the scaffold and confesses. He says, I'm, I'm the father. I've let them do this alone for seven years, and it's me, it's me, it's me. And what's so curious is that the figure of Roger Chillingworth, the, the jilted husband, the cuckold, is, has been torturing his the minister the whole time and he tries to stop him from confessing and yes. and there's this language that chillingworth has been transformed into the devil himself at the very least as a tool of the devil and he says no don't confess don't do it as though we can so rack ourselves uh, because of our of our sins and, and our guilt but we think we have to hide it and cover it up forever that's the only way we'll get by but actually the only chance we have for redemption is just to confess. That's when the devil loses all his power. Exactly. That's why R Roger Chillingworth is so trying to prevent Dimsdale from saying it because he loses his power over, over Dimsdale. It was the, the vocation of Chillingworth's 
life to be his physician, be Dimsdale's helper, but he was really just playing with the minister's conscience. And so you're absolutely right. Once Dimsdale comes out with it, Chillingworth's um, purpose is null. Why does Hester come home at the end? So Hester goes away and her daughter, they don't know what happened to her daughter. Did her daughter die early death? Did she get married off? They come to find out as Hester comes home, this older woman goes into her old cottage on the edge of town and she lives a plain life, but she receives letters and she receives fine goods. And it would seem that her daughter, Pearl, is thriving elsewhere, but Hester doesn't want to go live with Pearl. Uh, Hawthorne says that uh, c- clearly Pearl loves her mother. I'm sure that the, the mother could go live by the fireside of Pearl, but she doesn't want to. She comes back to the town in New England and she puts on the scarlet letter. Why? There's a line in the book, in, in this book, I mean, I think it's it's a beautiful spiritual exploration of the nature of sin, but it's also just, just uh, fantastically written. There's this line at the beginning of the book that caught me, and Hawthorne says, there is a fatality, a feeling so irresistible and inevitable that it has the force of doom, which almost invariably compels human beings to linger around and haunt, ghost-like, the spot where some great and marked event has given color to their life. And still the more irresistibly, the darker the tinge that saddens it. Hester's sin were the roots which she struck into the soil. That rang true to me. There is this kind of human element of when, when something significant happens in your life, you are drawn to that place, especially when you when it's a sin, especially when you do something bad. Sometimes when you sin, life becomes more lifelike. But I think she really takes it as her spiritual, moral responsibility to see this through to the end. And also at the end of the book in, in that cottage, which you mentioned that she goes back to, she receives visitors who tell her about their sinful life. And so to use a particularly lib phrase, she's kind of paying it forward. Yeah, no, this is so beautiful. And it's, it's one of the deeply conservative insights, I guess, of the book, getting back to that question earlier, which is she commits this sin which when you find out how old and ugly her husband is, you start to empathize, sympathize with her, I guess, a little more. You find out he was gone for a long time, you know, who hasn't slipped up? And it it ruins her life, maybe. It at least defines her life. But what happens? She becomes a charity worker. She just, Mm -hmm. she gives everything she can and helps people. And the same is true of Dimsdale. Dimsdale, even without confessing, he's just having committed the sin and being so conscious of it. Hawthorne writes, that his, his sermons took on this much deeper quality and they just rang so true and they, they, it gave him such empathy and it gave him uh, such compassion, obviously compassion because he was so, so suffering along with the sinners in his flock. So it's a reminder that, that God in his providence, in his passive will, takes evil, even evil, and can turn it to good. The other very conservative observation, I guess is an, it's an observation that goes back to Aristotle, is that point at the end that you just made. She goes back because this place has defined her. This action has defined her life. She's lived her life there. The letter has defined her. It's been basically a part of her body for for so many years now. And she puts it back on because 
There's, there's an expression in Alcoholics Anonymous that an <laughs> alcoholic buddy mentioned to me once, which is, uh, wherever you go, there you are. That you, you can't flee. When people try to flee circumstances, often they're trying to flee themselves and you can't flee yourself. And the Aristotelian uh, insight here is that man is not an atom. We're not just floating in outer space alone. Man is a political creature. Our identity comes from the political community, which is why for all the romance and all the theology here, this is a political book too. This is a book where some of the main characters are governors, are public men, are people crafting the legislation and the norms and the customs of this community. So it's not, not even just about Hester Prynne or Pearl or Dimsdale. It's about a whole place. It really is about the Puritans in this particular place, in this particular time. Mm-hmm. I think this also raises the question, though, when are you done? When is it enough? I admire that, that Hester went back and, and she stayed at her post and, until the end of her life and really uh, took it upon her to bear the consequences of her wrongdoing. But then this is where Hawthorne's ambiguity comes in. And as much as a, as a reader, I would like a clear answer, a clear moral takeaway. I, as I said earlier, I appreciate his, his ambiguity because it reflects life. I sort of think Hester ought to maybe have left and had her own life. So she was this she not did, her own life? Well, have a more independent life, a, a happier life. But you know, she she did this one-time thing when she was young. She was forced into this loveless marriage with this guy who was basically turned into a devil. She has Was she forced into it though? Well, she you know, but like she took the vow. Fair enough. He didn't like club her on the head no, and drag her point. off. You know. Fair enough. But she, even Chillingworth at the beginning of the book, they're having this dialogue and Chillingworth says to Hester, I actually don't blame you yeah. because I know that I'm, I know that I'm ugly. Yeah, I should never have I, expected love from you. Yes. Yeah. I know that I'm ugly. I know that I'm boring. You're the opposite of those things. And I really made you do this. And I knew that, that you didn't love me. So, so again, you, you as a reader kind of walk away and you go, did Hester do it right? Did Dimsdale do it right? Certainly Chillingworth didn't do it right, but... But, but you know why she couldn't run away? When is it all over? Hawthorne tells you why she can't run away, which is a character. That, that Pearl is not just this little impish, elfish child. She is the physical embodiment, the undeniable reality of this sin. Yes. And so you could say, well, she could run off with the kid and go live somewhere. Maybe she could do that. But for the literary, you know, in terms of, of a literary device, Hawthorne reminds us here, you, you can't undo it. Today, m- modern people today, modern liberals say that you can undo it. You just go down to Planned Parenthood. But <laughs> there was no Planned Parenthood then, thank God. And you can't actually undo a sin that you've, you've committed. Though Hawthorne obviously leaves open the door to forgiveness and absolution. But it, it's only at that moment when one actually acknowledges one's sin and, and asks for forgiveness. Yes, yes. The, at the end of the book, there's this line, and uh, Hawthorne says it's, it's the motto of the entire book. Um, be true, be true, be true. Show freely to the world, if not your worst, yet some trait whereby the worst may be inferred. That substantiates your point. Hmm. A quick note on Pearl, because I, I think she's this fascinating character. You, you said that she's like she's described as this elf. She says her father's the devil. She says weird stuff. She does. (laughs) She says weird stuff. And she loves to play around with her mother. She touches 
the scarlet letter because she knows that it it yeah. burns her mother's breast. She demands that sh- that Hester put the scarlet letter back on. Yes, and that's the point that I wanted to bring up because she is a very knowing, astute child. When they are in the the forest, Hester and Dimsdale reunite, and they decide enough is enough. We're going to be a family. We're going to go to England in four days' time, and th- they love each other. They're, they're truly in love, yeah. and Pearl. The little elf is playing over by the brook. And Hester says, come, come, Pearl. Come, you know, speak to the minister. And Pearl comes up to Dimsdale. And Dimsdale asks for a kiss. And Pearl says, will you be seen publicly with us? Tomorrow tomorrow afternoon. (laughs) Yes, tomorrow afternoon in this big, you know, public place where they're having the, the parade. She says, will you be seen publicly with us? Will you, will you hold my mother's hand? Will you, will you kiss me in public as you're doing now? And Dimsdale says, oh, little Pearl, uh, soon, but not tomorrow. <laughs> and to her great credit, she says, you don't get a kiss. I admire Pearl. Maybe, she, maybe <laughs> she's the character who Hawthorne is, is trying to say is one of the protagonists that we should look up to. And at the end of the book, when there is that dramatic scene where Dimsdale finally reveals that he is the co-adulterer, the father of Pearl, he says, because he's, he's literally five seconds away from dying, he says, my little Pearl, come here, give me a kiss. And she leaps right over yeah. and gives him a kiss. And all of that bitterness, all of that elfishness, that wickedness sheds away because he is now true. Mm-hmm. And his mother is with him now. And, and you see, on the flip side of the stage, you see uh, Chillingworth, who at this point, uh, Hawthorne says, the life basically went out of him. He doesn't literally die then, but he dies within a year. And the message, I don't think, is that this guy was just always a devil. It's much harder than that. He doesn't start out a devil. He, he's ugly. He's older. It was probably not a great idea for him to marry this young, beautiful girl. Probably was going to have problems. But he starts out as an okay guy, an absent-minded scientist. He, he becomes spiritually and physically contorted over time to, to be the devil himself because that's what sin does. Yes. Sin does that to everybody. It does it to every character, which, which is why, uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to be too harsh on Hester here, but it's why I think it's important to underscore the point that she did sin and she acknowledged it. She accepted it. Dimsdale accepted it. They all did because that sin twisted all of their lives. That little girl really is a demoniac little child. I mean, she really is a devilish little little thing, and she probably wouldn't have been otherwise. That witch, the the sister of the governor, Mistress Hibbins, Mistress yes. Hibbins, she really goes and does weird witchy stuff. It's all real, and and what, what I love so much about romance, and and especially Scarlet Letter and and American novels of this period, is you just see these spiritual realities represented physically so often. But it, it is real. That much as she may have been oppressed, Hester Prynne, had they not slept together, they all probably would have lived better lives. Mm. Is that too harsh to say? Is no. that too conservative to say? <laughs> no, it, it's certainly not too harsh to say. You're probably right. But also, there were higher levels that Hester reached as a result of her sin. Yeah. She, again, transformed herself in, into this pious, dignified, dutiful woman. 
And she gained this sympathetic understanding of other people. But she was miserable. You're right. And again, I know I'm like a broken record, but there's this ambiguity. What was it? Was it better that she had done this or, or was it not? But then perhaps the resolution is a very Christian resolution, which is Dimsdale gets a happy ending. And Hester seems to think that she's got does a good Does Dimsdale get a happy ending? He, he's, I, I think he does. I mean, I, I think he is relieved of his burden of guilt. I think Hester sees a world in which they're in heaven, where they get to go to heaven. They're not just totally damned, as maybe the Puritans might have thought that they were, uh, albeit after this very difficult life, as a result of his confession and his repentance and, and acknowledgement of guilt. But I, I think Hester gets a, basically a happy ending. Pearl gets a happy ending, at least by what's implied. Uh, Chillingworth gets his just desserts. He gets an unhappy ending for basically selling his soul to the devil. But perhaps that the resolution to that ambiguity is, is the great mystery of Christianity, which is Hester as a stand-in, say, for Eve, you know, this woman who's fallen, who commits this one act and it dooms her and sin and death pervade the whole place. We could say reasonably at the end, well, it's a happy thing that she did that, even though at a surface level, the rest of her life and so many other people's lives were miserable. What Christians say at Easter right. is, oh, happy fault, referring to the fall of man, oh, happy fault that won for us so great, so glorious a redeemer. Another thing in the book is that Hawthorne subtly conveys the point in his writing that Hester has kind of liberated the town by being the scapegoat, by being the walking sermon against sin. She, she becomes a sympathetic person. She invites these people who, who share um, the, their sins with her. And then at the end, when it's revealed that this pious minister, who people literally think is angelic, I mean, yeah. all throughout the book, they say he is like the closest thing to God. He's these celestial beautiful, heavenly sermons. Including after his confession, when some yes. people just don't even believe it. Yes, yes, exactly. That's an important point. But here we have this family that has become this story of the town. This high minister has sinned and this lowly woman who wears the scarlet letter has sinned, but they're on the same ground and they've finally revealed it. And there's this element that maybe they are worse off, to your point, Michael. They, they all kind of had miserable lives. Yeah. But but they liberated the town from this strict, you know, orthodoxy of you have to be perfect all the time and sinless all the time. It it showed that yeah. that's it, not it the is, case in reality. It's it yeah it it that's a probably a very fair interpretation of the book. I'm sorry to say it's this theme in American literature, this theme of just liberation and independence and. We shouldn't have burned as many witches, and it's not very, not very conservative. <laughs> but he doesn't but. sugarcoat it, also, because <laughs> these these people are miserable. I know that you said that that Hester and Pearl have a happy ending. I agree that Pearl has a happy ending. She actually, it's worth noting, she inherits Chillingworth's estate. Yeah. So that also shows that that Chillingworth, at the end of his life, may have felt some guilt yeah. for becoming so vengeful, and and he bequeaths his fortune to his to a child that is not his. Pearl has a happy ending. Hester, I'm not so sure. I think that she is exonerated at the end of the book in the eyes of the town. There was actually a line in the book where Chillingworth tells Hester that the governor had debated whether or not to, to actually remove the Scarlet Letter. So I, th yep. I think in the eyes of others, she is 
exonerated or redeemed. But she stays at her post and she bears a lot of that guilt until the end of her life. So I'm not so sure that she views herself as exonerated. But what you said about the the Puritan's harshness brings me to another point, which is that at the beginning of the book, as we know, Hester Prynne is the object of utter scorn by the community. They Many people want her dead. They, they ridicule her. She is talked about in many of the sermons. And they just view her as irreversibly defective. Again, that kind of changes throughout the book. But at the beginning, they view her as, as totally irreversibly defective. And then at the end of the book, we see Dimsdale, who has this big mea culpa, this big perf- you know, confession, and drops dead. And there are, Hawthorne writes that there are people after his death who refuse to believe that his adultery was true. They say, oh, the pious minister is so heavenly that he came up with this parable to, you know, tell, tell us that, that he's a sinner just as much as we are. They refuse to believe that, that he could sin. And so I think it, Hawthorne is reflecting this tendency of human nature to either paint people as totally wrong, evil, defective, or totally good, glorious, can do no wrong. And it's this full circle of the book, because again, at the beginning, Hester is painted in this terrible way. And at the end, her counterpart, Dimsdale, is painted in this pure light. Curious, too. He writes this in 1850 or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So we're 200 years about removed from, from the events of the book. That society's gone. That, that austere Puritan New England is gone already at this point. So why bring it back up? Is there a nostalgia for it? Is there a longing that something awful was overcome or that maybe something perhaps somewhat valuable was lost? Hmm. Well, again, Hawthorne speaks harshly of the Puritans, but he also praises some elements of of, uh, their character, which he says was necessary to have in founding members, essentially, of a country. This book is written just a few decades after the the first colony was founded. So in a way, as much as... It takes place just a few... Takes place, thank you. That's right, takes place. So in a way, as much as we rightfully criticize the Puritans for being too judgmental, you needed people who were a bit unbending and unforgiving in order to be so (laughs) principled to, to weather the weather of New England right. to to get over the plagues, to build this country yeah. that we have now. So I think Hawthorne appreciates that. But right now, Michael, we're in a puritanical moment. Hmm. Wokeism is puritanical. Yeah. We live in this moment where we brand people with a scarlet letter. We say that one moment in their lives defines their entire existence. They are defective because of it. Wokeism is subscribing to an orthodoxy, demanding that you wear a uniform or speak a language of a kind of purity. It's a great reason to read this book again in 2023. That's right. Something totally unintended by Nathaniel Hawthorne, but God in his good providence, unknown to so many of us for so much of the time, planted the seeds just 200 years ago, less than 200 years ago. Thank you so much for being here, Julie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for watching. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Book Club. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for watching this episode of The Book Club on PragerU. 
PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so we rely on donations from viewers like you to keep this content on the air. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today to help keep this content coming. Thank you very much.